everyone, welcome to Shades of Yellow. I'm your host, Summer. Shades of Yellow features inspiring Chinese diasporas who are passionately promoting a deeper understanding of Chinese culture, bridging cultural gaps, and supporting the overseas Chinese communities around the world. This is a podcast created by the Chinese diaspora and for the Chinese diasporas. Today is October 1st. Mid Autumn Festival for 2020. This is a traditional festival with over 3,000 years of history. It is being celebrated by different cultures and different communities across East and Southeast Asia. Besides giving and enjoying delicious mooncake, it's a festival that represents family and family reunion, which in 2020 it has been really hard for many people. Well, I hope you got to spend some time with your loved ones and maybe enjoy a couple of mooncakes. In today's episode, I speak with Tara, the host of the podcast "Adopted Babies from China." Tara herself is an adoptee. She was born in Ningbo during the festive month of Mid Autumn Festival, which is why she was given the beautiful name of Zhongqiu. Before she was adopted by her American family, in this episode we talk about why she's not looking for her birth parents, what she thinks about the one-child policy, which is commonly associated with Chinese adoption, and why people should stop telling adoptees that they're lucky to have been adopted. Through Tara's story, we get a glimpse into the world of the adopted babies from China. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. To start off, happy belated birthday! Oh, was, thank you. And your name? Tell us your name because I think your name coincides with the festival that we're about to celebrate. Yes, yes. I am named after the Mid Autumn Festival, so Zhong Chou. But my birthday is right in the midst of the festival. I guess it falls between beginning of September or end of October. And then my surname is. Shen, which is after the welfare center that I am from.、Uh, oh. So my whole name is Shen Zhongzhou. That is、I'm、my name.、Lucky. So maybe just introduce yourself and tell us about. You know where you were born, your upbringing. My name is Tara, and I am an adopted baby from China. I was adopted at age four from Ningbo, which is in southeast. That's usually how I describe it. At age four, I came to the U.S. because my adopted parents wanted a daughter, and they have two biological sons. I had no control over this event. But I guess I would say I'm fortunate to have come to the U.S. I grew up near Washington D.C. and then about three months ago I moved to New York City, which is also on the East Coast in the U.S. and decided to try to be away from home and start a new path. Essentially, a big reason for being adopted and understanding more about myself, especially as I get a little bit older. I was able to sort of direct that attention and energy into a podcast. I actually started Adopted Babies from China in April. So my interest in Chinese culture and my adoption specifically has been since I was 25. So I guess we're getting into three years now. I decided, you know what? I really want to learn more about my adoption. 
at that time, I was like, I really want to connect with other Chinese adoptees. And so I looked on Facebook groups and I found one that was, it's called Chinese Children International. And we all were posting and there's one for adoptees only as a subset of this Chinese Children International group. And I was just looking for a good two months before I saw a post from somebody who is also from Ningbo. Her name is Katie. She's actually adopted from Shame Welfare Center. I had contacted her on Facebook and it took probably about a month or so before I really was like, I guess I should comment on her post because she's not seeing my message. message. Yeah. Yeah, so she's like, I'm not gonna see this message. And the rest is pretty much history from there. As soon as I commented on her post, I got a message back from her and we started exchanging messages right away. I think our first conversation was at the end of February that year. And we talked on the phone and we just ended up talking on the phone pretty consistently, like once a week for like an hour. And while getting to know her, she grew up in Massachusetts, but she lives in New York City now with her boyfriend and she went to university in New York City. And so it was like, oh, we have this connection. And but when I was speaking with Katie, it just clicked too. sometimes you click with people immediately. It was like, oh, we are the same age. We're from the same orphanage. Both of our surnames are Shen because that's the same welfare institute. I guess they gave the same surname. Then we did video calls pretty much once a week. And then I first visited her, I believe, a little bit over a year. I came to New York City in like March of the next following year, like when we met. It's like we've been friends forever. And that's how it was with Katie. I've known Katie too. She's been writing. She's writing a memoir right now related to being a Chinese adoptee. Like that has the focus. She's talked about it. And truly, Katie's the only Chinese adoptee that I've really spoken with. So this was all very new to me, too. I hadn't really spoken about Chinese adoption or culture as much in depth until it was Katie that I met. Actually, the podcast was inspired because of her when I was hearing more about her story and her writing. And then I actually got to read parts of her story. I was like, oh, my gosh, this is amazing. I hope there's other resources about Chinese adoptees that are like this. I was like, oh, okay. There are some books out there, but I don't think there's as many. At the same time, I am a huge podcaster listener too. I love listening to podcasts. Many, I pretty much probably spend, I want to say like four hours a day listening to podcasts. And I decided to look up, is there any podcasts about Chinese adoption? There's a lot of podcasts about adoption, Asian American culture, but I couldn't find any specific to Chinese adoptees. I was like, why don't I go ahead and make this? So the thought came into my mind to make this podcast, but I didn't actually act on it until the pandemic because I finally had time. And I part of the goal was to have Katie be like a co-host. Katie is a writer. And I have to remember, I think like as a writer, sometimes a lot of your creativity and voice come through in words. And I'm not really a writer. I can edit. I'm more expressive through voice. And so that's how I started the Adopted Babies from China podcast. So it's actually been six months, um, pretty much today. Yeah, six months today wow. that I started. And I was like, oh, wow, I can't believe it's been six months. <laughs> but what I'm realizing as I'm talking to other people and what my focus has been is I want to connect with people on a humanity level, too. It's not just that we're Chinese adoptees or that we're Chinese Americans or Chinese Canadians, Chinese European. Like, There's a lot of Chinese adoptees everywhere, as there are a lot of Chinese people everywhere. Because of the podcast, too, is 
there are people who are finding this podcast, they can relate to it. But I'm also finding that it's allowed me to connect with other Chinese individuals too. I think building a community, it is about harnessing and uncovering the human side of people. It's through those stories that you can make better connections. Since you've started the Adopted Babies from China, what are some of the shared experience with other Chinese adoptees versus just with adoptees in general? Do you see more commonalities for one versus the other? Yes. We all as Chinese adoptees, I think we all experience together is a lot of the microaggressions that I think actually first gen Asian Americans also experience. Oh, you don't speak Chinese? Like, why is that? you don't know what this item is. But I also noticed we've done that to a lot of first Chinese Americans or Asian Americans too. So it's kind of this twisted thing. I think the biggest thing for the Chinese adoptees that we relate to and we all understand is the one child policy that I don't believe any other adoptees really can feel the impact of that policy similar to how we do. But then as adoptees in general that I've noticed is the connection to birth parents. I've, I've noticed that as a consistent pattern everywhere, finding them or searching or not finding them and understanding that that connection or that is a trauma essentially that we all will share as adoptees in general. So in a way, it's kind of comforting because there are a lot of adoptees everywhere too. Uh, but I know the one thing that connects Chinese adoptees, I think, is the political backing too. We all, in a way, are like... Are we glad we escaped this? But also there are many beautiful things in China that we don't necessarily have where we are now. But I would say that's the biggest commonality that we all experience as Chinese adoptees is definitely the political side of it is much stronger than it seems with other adoptees versus adoptees in general. It's like, I'm not gonna know. I don't really want to know who my birth mother is. It's okay. It's I mean, I have no control over that. And the more mm -hmm. I focus on that too, the more frustrating it can be. Because mm. when you focus on stuff that you that's beyond your control, I feel like my energy can be put in a different direction. So there's, there's that. That's on my own personal level. I can't say that for all Chinese adoptees or adoptees because there are a fair amount of Chinese adoptees who are interested in doing a search and have been doing a search or because they hold that really close to their heart and what's a priority for them. And I support that as well because I can understand it. It's like, oh, I just don't have that strong of a feeling right now related to that. Mm -hmm. I think that also goes with leading into Chinese culture. There are a fair amount of Chinese adoptees who want to learn Mandarin and then there's a good number who have no interest at all. It's different for everybody. The biggest takeaway I've been learning from doing the podcast too or just speaking with other Chinese adoptees is we're all different kinds of humans too. Just because we're all Chinese adoptees doesn't mean that we have to have the same view on everything. We're, we're, all, we're all human and it's just hearing the different versions and understanding is, it's very helpful. Uh, being a Chinese adoptee, like abandonment issues and they really affect relationships too. Uh, it could be adoptees in general, but I feel like speaking with Chinese adoptees specifically, we think much because of the political backing of it too. So, um, how we approach our relationships with other individuals, especially family and friends, those who we allow close to us. Uh, there's a sense of like, are they going to leave us because we were left possibly because of that policy? So that's another core underlying commonality I think we all have. And I, I believe that does affect a lot about how speaking with other Chinese adoptees, especially about family relationships, has been like very impactful too.
because we don't always talk about the family side of relationships. It seems like something we don't always vocalize. And when you say family, did you mean family as in your adopted family? Yes. Family issues. And I'm sure birth family too. I'm sure. I know I personally can't speak to that because I haven't connected with my birth family, but I imagine those who have been able to connect with their birth family, there's a lot of feelings about that relationship too. Because that's what we all know is who our adoptive parents or parents are. Like we can talk about that relationship and we don't always go into such great detail about if it's not a great relationship or if it's estranged or if it's not positive too. But I think it's also birth families too. Yeah, I feel like there's so much around that that I want to dive into. (laughs) But can you actually talk a little bit more about abandonment? Because clearly, because our childhood has a huge impact on how we are as an adult, right? Like Mm, how we built relationship. And and, and I think like even for myself, you know, my relationship with my, my father really influenced me in how I went on to having, you know, relationship as an adult, right? Um, There was Mm. a sense of insecurity because when I was growing up, after I moved to Singapore, um, it was really just me and my mom. So my dad was in China and I see him maybe once or twice a year. So because of that absentee father figure, I had a lot of, you know, insecurities, as, especially as a, a young adult, and that manifests itself in relationship. To me, I definitely see the impact, like incidents that as a child that I kind of overlooked manifested itself later on in my life that, that just got me thinking about, you know, how impactful those experiences can be. So when you talk about abandonment, like I want to hear more about whether it's your experience or just your observation of others and how that, you know, that incident as a child impacted you uh, as an adult or how it manifests itself in whether it's in relationship or in mental health or whatever you feel comfortable sharing. Similar to not having to be told that I'm adopted by my parents at a very young age because I understood I don't look like my family at all. There wasn't a conversation necessarily about being a different person physically than my my family. I feel maybe it's just my personal view and my perspective is I, I've had a very under more mature, more mature understanding of who I am as an individual growing up, even at a really young age. So it's like, there's always kind of this thought that when I heard about the one child policy of it was, it was like easy just to discard a child um, because even in our papers or not everybody's papers, my papers, it says discarded child, essentially mm-hmm. like trash in a way like that's the wording they use in the translation. I, I'm sure the actual words may, maybe are nicer, but the English translation is like discarded child found here on this street. And it's like, couldn't find the family or couldn't find the mother within the range so it's like I got those papers and I read that. I was like, oh, well, that's it's kind of like unfortunate to be considered like a discarded item, essentially. It's like, oh, tossed away. So having that growing up, that mentality is like, oh, I was discarded, that I could be discarded again, essentially. Mm. So as a child growing up with brothers who, you know, it's like they tease you and stuff, but other children, other kids can be mean because maybe their parents didn't have conversations with them about this kind of stuff that they should. It's like, being told as an adopted kid, it's like, oh, you could be sent back at any moment. Mm. It's like, excuse me? Why would anybody ever say that to 
an adopted kid in general, not just Chinese adopted kid, but any adopted kid, like you could be sent back or you weren't loved. So there's always this kind of underlying fear. And I feel like I can generalize for a lot of Chinese adoptees that we all feel that it's like, do we deserve to be loved? And are we being valued because of what we look like or because they actually care about us? So I would say uh, on a relationship level, because I share this, I've shared in therapy too, because therapy is very nice, but it's like throughout my early 20s, that age range that I'm saying, basically 17 to like 25, 26, I want to say, yeah, 25 to 26, there was a series of relationships I engaged in. They, were, they weren't all always serious relationships. I would say I had, I had two boyfriends, serious relationships <laughs> that weren't even a whole year each. And I'm witnessing other people have these relationships that have been years long or they get married. You know, it's like I'm seeing this all around me. And from my perspective, it was like I've noticed a lot of relationships I gauge with or hooked, hooked up with like individuals. I had a lot of partners growing up, like in that age range from when I was really understanding what sex was to uh, present. And it's like I would feel like that was my way of connecting with other individuals usually men yeah it was always it was always men I haven't been with a woman and that has crossed my mind it's like would a relationship would they value me more because you're also a female Mm. that's not necessarily true but I think that underlying thought of always like am I going to be left behind and in a way I kind of would be like it's like I would hook up with somebody or I would like some of the partners that I I was with they did just sort of like leave me. And I realized in that experience, many of those experiences, I actually grew from that too. Like I learned from those experiences too, but it always kind of brought back the feeling of, oh, I'm being discarded again, which nobody wants to feel like they're not valued or loved. And I think that really contributed a lot to the, the really the downfall of the decisions and probably related to family as well because with my brothers we, we were not close growing up I tried to become closer with them and then it was not it didn't happen it's sort of my parents didn't exactly help connect us or bridge us a little bit more uh, I know my dad and I had a very honest conversation about this with my brothers it's like I, it's like you guys aren't very close and I I, I, like, I don't want to force you guys to be closer than you're comfortable because that's not fair to do in any relationship and so it's like thinking about that too it was like connecting and it's like being attracted to men i was like man would it be easier but basically the whole underlying idea about abandonment i think i have heard other adoptees sort of express like am i do i deserve to be loved in this way it's like should i be valued do i deserve to be loved because we were not when we were babies essentially or we were left abandoned discarded as babies so it's it's almost like it's a little bit tougher to form a really strong relationship with another individual so let me ask what is your view on china essentially your birth country and how has that evolved from the trips that you've made when i was 10 i went back with my family and i thought oh my gosh this place is huge it's so big it's beautiful china is a beautiful country I think we went where the really big Buddha is. Took a really long time to climb up it. And I, being 10 years old, and sometimes you're like, I don't want to 
be doing this right now? Why am I doing this? And I was like, oh man, I didn't appreciate it at that time. And I, I know that I feel that's pretty common amongst preteens, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't really remember interactions very well with other Chinese individuals at all, because of course being in China, everyone's Chinese for the most part. I had an inkling or an awareness, of course, it's like, oh, I'm here with like a white family, a mom, dad, and brother who are white, and then me. And I'm a child. And I was like, so I don't really notice any difference. And also, I just enjoyed the experience that it was really cool to be able to go there and see this giant Buddha and the bamboo forest and like the boats made out of bamboo. It was all really cool to see. I was like, oh, wow. Uh, food <laughs> is amazing as well. And so I was like, I'm really enjoying this trip for what it is. But I wasn't really connecting to like being Chinese at the time. But then when I was 25 and I decided let's look more into Chinese culture a little bit, but also my adoption, I had gone back to the orphanage this time. I did with my dad, since he speaks Mandarin too, much more fluent than I know I do. That trip I think was valuable. And I had the intention of not having any expectations going on that trip. So in a way, when I went to the orphanage, because it had been renovated, they had just renovated it. When I spoke with Katie, because she also went back, I think about two years before I went, which that was amazing too. Like because that experience of meeting Katie and having connected and we became very close, I had her basically there when I went to message in real time, like this is how I'm feeling right now. I feel very frustrated, but also kind of overwhelmed. I also knew by this point, it's like I am 100% Chinese according to all the DNA tests. So I was like, all right, so I'm definitely Chinese, this is cool. <laughs> so the second trip, it's like, I definitely was more mature. I think going back for the trip, it helped me to grow up a little bit, but truly it's not the case. Just because you go back home, and this is my personal view again, it doesn't make you more mature. And I do ask all these adoptees, it's like, have you been back to China? Do you have interest? Because I always emphasize that's going to change what your thoughts are going to be about your adoption, how you feel in two, five, 10 years. I came back from China. I left the job that I was at not long after the trip. And then I went to the job where I got fired. So I was like, oh, you know what? You're, you really haven't grown up yet. You're still working on it. And so that's also, I feel like I use the podcast as an avenue to speak with adoptees and kind of give advice in a way, because it's, it's like, I want to share from my perspective, but I don't want to tell you what to do. What happens a lot sometimes in episodes, and I feel like I'm having that moment now, is like, oh, you have another understanding of yourself. But the trip going back, the orphanage, because then I also went on that trip to Weilin. I actually went to like a Chinese accelerated study program. And it's a program that my dad had gone and attended a couple times before. Uh, so we were there at the same time, which was a really interesting experience to be there with my dad. And I also discovered something about myself too. It was like, I was really attracted to an individual who is a female, I think biologically, but identifies as a male. Mm. And we never really spoke on it too much. And this is truly the first time that I was attracted to somebody. At first, it was really confusing, like, uh, because I would say they or yeah. he, depending, because uh, we still haven't talked about it. And I don't know how to bring that up, especially in Mandarin, because my Mandarin is at the level of where's the bus? How do I get here? The really important stuff, but <laughs> yes. being able to talk on a deeper level about gender identity and politics like I can't do that in Mandarin because I don't have that level yet I want to say it's like I haven't been attracted to 
females usually. I'm usually not. I haven't been in the U.S. really attracted to females because I, I really do appreciate females and like the human body. Like I, I do love females, but not in like a romantic or sexual attraction too. So that was kind of a big insight that I learned on that trip. And I shared that with Katie immediately as like I met this person who we never talked about it out, outwardly, but like we became friends. And it almost seemed like we became a little bit more than friends in a way, but we didn't do anything about it because I was leaving. And in China, it's like, you can't do that either. So like the experience of going back, I would say the second time a little bit older, yes, I had more awareness and understanding of everything going on, uh, but it didn't really make me grow up essentially. I think true growing up has only been in the past about three years. <laughs> but now I truly feel like I'm starting to really grow up by moving to New York. We're always learning, you know, becoming better versions of ourselves. So it's almost like growing up should be continual. Oh, yeah. I, I feel like this transfers into Chinese-ness, too. Yeah. The whole idea of, like, Chinese-ness, what that exactly means. Kind of like the whole growing up thing. That's always continue. I feel like Chinese-ness, in a way, is always gradually changing and it's continual too. I know I'm still Chinese, even without having all of the cultural traditions and everything, because that is just a part of who I am. I don't want to change who I am. I think the big idea is like, I know I'm a beautiful person and it took 27 years almost to be confident with who I am as a person. And I mm -hmm. think that's also why I am comfortable with doing a podcast now as well, because I, I wouldn't have been able to do it younger because I, I don't think I had the right comfortability or understanding of people to really make that like a successful project in a sense and to connect people in the community. Yes, I believe that Chineseness is evolving for sure. And it also has different interpretations. Um, and I think we all can, you know, define what Chineseness means to us. And I think it's different from one person to, to the other. I do feel pretty strongly about you know, being able to be comfortable with your ethnic or your cultural identity and being able to embrace your cultural identity, whether you had the prior knowledge or not. But I think, you know, I'm willing and I'm eager to learn. I don't think I'm going to master everything immediately, but I'm curious and I'm open-minded in learning. And to me, I think it's not so much of what you already have, but it's also what you're willing to learn. So that would right. be like my definition of Chinese and I think Chineseness there's like so much more to it as well and that's why it's always like at the end of the day it's like the humanity level why do we have to label people that just creates so much more negative energy that it's harmful more than anything but it's also kind of interesting to have that a way a term to really connect what mm -hmm. what it is that's going on too yeah it's also a term that provokes into question your own assumption. I always enjoy a term that allows you to dive deeper and to have deeper conversation. And I think that process is what I actually really enjoy. So I want to ask you about Chinese adoptees in the sense of your observation now that you've, you know, running your podcast, but also you've been learning about this community. Because I, I remember one thing that you brought up in our earlier conversation is about the age range, Chinese adoptees tend to be around, I think, 17 to early 20s. Is there a reason behind that? Or why is that? Just based on what you've learned and what you found out. I believe it goes back to the one-child policy. Between 1997 and like 2006, I want to say, that a lot of babies were adopted from China. I, I want to say like the process wasn't as strict 
I have heard and what other adoptees have told me is adopting from China was one of the easiest places to adopt from versus like other countries, I guess. But to me, like as a Chinese adoptee, just 17 to 24, it seems that's still a very young time to try and understand and have a definitive idea of who you are yet. It's tough because what I've observed of a lot of Chinese adoptees, those who are in relationships, for instance, most of them are dating individuals who are not the same ethnicity. It's very rare that I've talked to a Chinese adoptee who says, my boyfriend is also Chinese. I've noticed that amongst adoptees too that I've spoken with who have a boyfriend or girlfriend, I should say. That's the other thing too, is most adoptees I've spoken with, Chinese adoptees are female. I'm pretty sure that most Chinese adoptees are female, but in Korea, it's actually the opposite and they're all older. And I asked somebody about this and they said, it's probably because of the Korean War. I was like, oh, wow. <laughs> so it's oh. like events in history really influence a lot of yeah. the sway, like the really uneven sway too. Because you talk about one child policy and I feel like in my own digging into this topic of Chinese adoption, it comes up a lot. Were you curious about one child policy and the implication? What does it mean to you? Like, is it something that makes you very uncomfortable? I would say personally, it doesn't really upset me in any particular way. I have read some stories that because of the one child policy, there was actually a lot of trafficking within China as well. I believe I got in this conversation with Katie and we got really deep into like, all, because international adoption, you make a lot of money as well, like the welfare centers or the government, whoever profits from international adoption, you make a lot of money from it. And I did attempt to read a book about Chinese adoption, showing about how people were kidnapping babies that weren't intended to be abandoned mm. to then sell and traffic to international families. And I was like, in that case, that was pretty alarming and that was a, more upsetting to me is that something like the one-child policy caused some babies to be taken away from their family that families didn't intend to. Because they saw the opportunity to potentially yes. profit from it, right? Because of the demand uh, for adoption from abroad. Yeah, the opportunity to like, I can make some money so I'm going to go kidnap some family's baby was like, that's really upsetting in that case. Because I think just thinking of families going through that where it's like they are losing a child that they didn't intend to lose. Reading a story like that was really like heartbreaking to read that too. It's like, oh my God, like why would people think let's tear apart families that don't want to be torn apart? And there are moments it's like, yes, I want to be angry at something. And that is a good thing to like think of. I can be angry about this one child policy because it is pretty messed up. And they did lift the policy, so it's no longer active. But it, it it's always like tough to get, not get stuck in the, oh, what if? What if this didn't happen? So I want to say with the one-child policy personally, I definitely don't get upset by it because it's probably the reason that I'm here. Yeah, one-child policy, it's there. It happens. But right now, the things that are going on, how we're destroying our climate and like disrespecting other people because of what they look like. That's more upsetting. This is what I would rather focus my energy on. I do see that, you know, as China becomes more powerful economically, what role does it play? How can we, you know, create a more inclusive world than what we have today? So I, I think that's also something interesting for Chinese people to think about. Because I had a question about 
if there are any like stereotypes or misconception people may have about Chinese adoptee? I want to say it can be considered a misconception is the conversation about fortune or being lucky to have been adopted. I want to say that's probably a big common one amongst um, Chinese individuals who've spoken to us as well as as I learned sometimes your own adoptive parents. It's like, oh, you're so lucky to have been brought to a nice family has been repeated and said a lot. And I feel like it's just having that said a lot. Sometimes it's like, this is again, it's like, this is not something that I chose for me. I just happened to be adopted and I am in a family that was able to raise me. But it's like, how was that fair to tell somebody that? It's like, oh, you're so lucky to have this life that you're living. It's like, mm-hmm. like, like we had a play or we had an action that allowed us to choose this life. And it's like, I, I don't think it's very common that we, any of us really had any input on what was going on with being abandoned or not being abandoned or which family we can come to and who raises us to. Maybe that's a misconception with all adoptees and not just Chinese adoptees. In regards to Chinese individuals, when they say that, I think they kind of, I feel like there's so much more underneath that comment from a Chinese individual than from like somebody outside of China. A lot of times when people share these misunderstandings or they share these sentiments, it has a lot more to do with them themselves. And I think that's just a common thing in life is it's not about you, which is always a tough thing to understand. It's like, no, I know it's not about me, but it just sucks sometimes to hear that. I'm glad that you brought that up because I do think that is true. That is a common misconception and it was funny because recently you know I I read an article on Washington Post about a Chinese adoptee and about you know her experience and she eventually connected uh, with her birth parents and then it's interesting because I sometimes always love to read the comments at the end of an article and just see what other people's reactions are after reading and then you can see a lot of people like yeah, like good for you. You know, you have such a kind family that took you in and all of that, right? So I, I think it's along the line of, you know, you're lucky that that you are adopted. So this, another not popular opinion, I think, the amount that you allow to publicize that story too. I feel like that's such a private event, sort of like finding your birth parents, right? And everything. But it seems the opportunity came to really publicize and share that story. I think if I'm correct, it's like this person then had a documentary made and then also this other stuff and this other stuff. It was like, so it almost seems like you took something that's really intimate, like you almost like uh, commercialized on it a little bit. So then it's kind of like, and this is where it's contradictory opinion. It's like, so that whole idea is like, oh, you're so lucky to have been adopted. So it's like this person, I guess, also found her family, but then like it became this big, commercial event where you then I guess got an ROI on it return on investment so really going down to the whole luck concept it's like oh you're so lucky and then I guess you're really lucky now because now it's become this big commercial event and I think it's a human thing too but there are some I think Chinese adoptees who may be using their story to I want to say like commercialize a little bit more than the intent of like the humanity side of it. If there's a humanity side, and then I feel like there's sometimes people take what they have and are misusing it in a sense. But I think that's a the biggest m- misconception with luck too, because like, oh, it's, and then you, and then it's like you find your family 
but then if you publicize it and make it a big thing and I mean I'm really happy for this person like, it's really great that you found your family but like why did it have to become you know news story this and there's this documentary or this and I think I heard an interview with her too and I was like there just seems to be something about the way that this is being presented that almost seems ingenuine I'm not trying to speak with like you and Shades of Yellow to become famous or I'm not trying to do my podcast to become famous because that's not the intent. I think when the intent is, and I'm sure that's how you feel about Shades of Yellow too. It's like you're really focusing on connecting the Chinese diaspora community and really helping and educating the world and other Chinese individuals about like how Chineseness and like how we're all really like, we're all here, we're all living and we're all learning from each other. I guess maybe when that person is told, hey, you're so lucky to have been adopted, they might agree because they commercialized and made a lot of profit from the story. And it's like, yikes. <laughs> That's just the sidebar on that. So I think that, they, yeah, that misconception of luck goes even deeper than just being told, hey, you could have had a crappy life here in China, but yeah. also now you're lucky because you found your family and it's like is there is there like another yeah. alternative reason that this became such a big story one thing in the article was about a focus on material like you know the whole premise about how she's lucky is she has all of these things that her birth parents or her brother never had and in a way it was you know this luck and this fortunate thing it's mm -hmm. centered around the availability of stuff you know the material needs being fulfilled and visibly how the other side of the world in china they didn't have all of these material things then that begs the question is that really happiness and then is that really being fortunate because i feel right. like material is one aspect but people that have a lot of things aren't always the ones that are happy yeah and then the other point that you brought up about you know, profiting or sort of benefiting from the story. And I have seen that a lot. And mm. I think there are certain narratives that really resonate mm. with the American audience or with Western audience. And if you really tap into that, you know, it could really work to someone's advantage. I, I know it's like uh, doing a podcast. It is self-serving too. I, I always repeat this too. It's like, I know this, I'm doing this for me. Like I'm making it about me and I'm very honest about it too, which maybe that's why it does resonate because like everything I say is truly like I'm sharing my true intent, no matter who's listening or what the response is. And I do think that everybody, I mean, they deserve to have their voice be heard. So, you know, there, everyone is entitled to telling their own story. And in fact, I think it is good that we all share more of our stories, especially being, you know, Chinese diasporas, because I think, I don't know if we have been that vocal in the mm -hmm. past and I, mean, I want to hear more voices but i also don't want media to be a filter that only filter through certain narratives that, that align with their objective when you talked about how you started to connect with the chinese culture at an earlier age through your father and then now on your own whether it's through your podcast or through other means you know, you're, you're discovering and you're really immersing into this uh, Chinese diaspora community or, or Chinese adoptee community. What are some of the things that you want to see more within this community 
are there things that you think us as a community, whether within you know the Chinese adoptee community or the larger Chinese diaspora community, what are some of the things that you think we can bring to the table that we can offer to the world that haven't really been talked about? I would say honestly, your this show, the Shades of Yellow show, was is like one of the first true resources that I've heard about Chinese individuals, like their experience. Um, like Chinese diasporas. And I think this in itself has been like an amazing resource. So it's like, I, I would say like, keep doing this show, of course. I, I feel like what can be brought more to the community is I, I would say honest conversations, uh, like seeing more of these types of conversations being had um, and really encouraging everybody to connect to one, to one another too, which you've definitely facilitated an environment where it's encouraged or maybe it's just what I do as I reached out, I reach out to each of your guests. I was like, it's really cool to hear your story about like your experience. It's so cool. Cause I don't know how else to describe it. It's very enlightening. It's very educational. What would you like to see more? I would say see more positives of the Chinese culture too. Uh, I think there's a lot that I see mostly filtered of like negative stuff that's happened with like what, what the Chinese government had, has done to Chinese adoptees, what the Chinese government does to minorities. Uh, but there's so much beauty. And I, I, I've noticed that in posts that Culture Gen puts out of a lot of beautiful things about the Chinese cultures, like the characters, the story behind them, seeing that kind of stuff, like the beauty within the Chinese culture, because there's a lot of beauty too. It's one of the richest histories in the world. But seeing more of the, the really beautiful side of Chinese culture will shine a better light because I think it's true. But the more focus that there is on a certain topic, the more at the forefront it shows and it becomes more present. So seeing items and posts similar to what Culture Den puts out and then shows like this and talking about the positive, not necessarily always the downfall and the negative too. I almost think that would bring more light to what's great about being Chinese too. I mean, it's very encouraging to hear you say that. And that's, that is exactly what we try to do. And I think it goes back to your whole focus with your podcast, which is focusing on the human side. When it comes to culture, it is very human. And if we really just uncover, because sometimes we get pulled into all these, you know, political talking points that the people in power, whether it being corporations or government that are you know, sort of really driving this and benefiting from all of these like clashes or, you know, or fights or, or, or even wars, but regular people are the ones that bears the impact, the negative impact, you know, whether yes. it's turning to against people because of what you're reading or what you're seeing on the news or having a misconception or seeing people through a lens of, you know, prejudice and discrimination or xenophobia. Yes. And I think we forget that, you know, we're so much better off if we can see the beauty in different cultures and mm -hmm. learn from each other. Well, thank you so much, Tara. It's so nice to, to connect with you and get to know you as a person. And then also just learning about your experience and also opening my view and learning more about the adoptee experience through your experience and also through the work that you do you know, um, via your podcast. And so, yeah. and I will say the same to you, you know, keep doing what you do. <laughs> um, as complex and as complicated the world is, I think, you know, it is time that we come together to connect mm -hmm. 
and to build bridges. And then hopefully through our experience as for our overseas Chinese, we can help build more bridges across other cultures. Yeah, so that's, that's really my vision and my goal. And, um, and we're definitely very aligned in that sense on what, why we started our podcast. Uh-uh. Yes, well, thank you so much. This has been amazing. And I really appreciate both of you taking the time to speak with me too, especially with all the conversation. You provide a lot of insight that I was like, oh, wow, that's a whole new idea I didn't think of. And you do such a great job with doing that too, Summer. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you for joining us in this journey to build a global Chinese diaspora community, one conversation at a time. Please remember to subscribe to this podcast, share it with your friends. And you can also follow us on Instagram at CultureGen. That's where we post daily Chinese artistic and cultural content to inspire our modern living. We'll see you in the next episode. Take care.